writing says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. If that doesn't encourage your heart, I might as well go home now. (laughs) Shall we pray? Father, again, we thank you for the real joy of looking one more time into the Holy Word. We thank you, Lord, how it is a hammer sometimes to break up a hard place. It is refreshing like a fountain of water. It has so many ways that it ministers to each of us and our diverse needs. And in a congregation of the size, we know there are needs that are varied and you have a way of ministering to each of them in your own way. So help us, Lord, as individuals sit like we're sitting at your feet and ask you, Lord, to speak that we might obey you. Direct our minds, instruct us, Our hearts inspire us, our lives incite us in everything, Lord. We want to give you the glory, and whatsoever we do, we do it to the glory of God. In thy name we ask it. Amen. may be seated. I think one other time in my ministry, I tried to open this passage. It spoke volumes to me, and I felt like maybe I wasn't quite adequate to handle it. And I'm discovering now, when I go to bed, I have about four hours that all of this runs through my head, and I get up two or three o'clock and write a few things down, and then try to get a few hours sleep before it's time to get up again. It's just difficult for me to lay it down, especially when God begins to open it up. And even at night, I find myself not resting well, realizing God wants to tell me something. I was was talking to the great Dr. Dennis Kinlaw a few weeks ago. Uh, I think he's about 94 years of age, the Hebrew scholar down in in Kentucky. He was Asbury president for many years. But he, uh, he told me, he said, Nelson, I know why God hasn't taken me home yet. His wife, Elsie, died probably a decade ago. He said, I I know why he hasn't. I said, why hasn't he taken you home? Well, he said, I was too dumb to come home. (laughs) I thought to myself immediately, if that's true, then I'm going to live a long time (laughs) before he takes me home. But he made a statement. He said, there are things God wants to share with me that I can leave behind for others. Let me tell you, if you've ever sat under his ministry, you understand why God wants him to hang around here a long time. Well, I, I just felt like maybe God wants me to leave a few things, so I just tried my best to be sensitive to his call, whether day or night. The text that I read this evening speaks of a life lived in the altitudes of spiritual realities. Uh, they're known only to the children of God. The world knows nothing about living in this realm And this is more than a mountaintop experience. It's more than a high tide of emotions that we might have 
in a revival meeting or a camp meeting that goes far deeper than that. It's walking on the highways below while we live in the heights above. It's the only way I know to explain this passage. And I want you to note two things. Particularly, I want you to note the higher life and then I want you to note the hidden life. Both of them are identified in these few verses. The higher life, he says, seek those things which are above. Now the admonition to seek is given to those who are risen with Christ. And those who are risen with Christ have certain rights and resources at their disposal. And those resources the apostle calls things above. Now, I want to examine, first of all, the risen life before we explore the things above. He says again, set your affections on things above. You know, early in my ministry when I was uh, attending the school, college, I remember uh, I had a professor drill into my mind what I believe was some of the best advice that I'd ever gotten from anyone. I remember he says, as you handle the word of God, two things keep in mind. Define your terms accurately and divide the word properly. If you don't do that, if you start out with the wrong premise, you're always going to end up with the wrong conclusion. And by the way, there are certain passages in this Bible that God is speaking to those within the covenant of faith. There are other passages he speaks to those outside the covenant of faith, and we cannot get them confused. And in this passage, he's dealing with those within the covenant of faith. Philip Brooks was a great theologian of years gone by, and he's also a beautiful hymn writer. He wrote the hymn uh, Christmas Carol, Little Town of Bethlehem, and other things he had done. But he made an interesting statement. He said, every major fact in the life of Christ becomes a factor in the life of the Christian. Let me see if I can explain at least in part what he was saying. There are stages in Christian experience that corresponds with the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus was the pattern for what we are to to go through. If you have your Bibles before you, let me just give you an idea of why I'm saying that. In fact, there is a sequence of things that take place. For example, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, you, you hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses. That word quickened there is to bring alive. You who were dead in your sin, he quickens you come alive unto God. In the 20th verse of that second chapter, he then says, Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world. Interesting, isn't it? We move from being quickened now to being dead. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, If you then be risen with Christ. In other words, whenever Jesus died on the cross, provisionally and potentially you died Your sin died, your self died when Christ died because that was a work done for us. But what he did for us has to become an experience wrought in us. 
Therefore, we must affirm by faith and appropriate by faith the realities of his death and claim the full participation in the power of the cross. Now, I've been emphasizing the cross. Maybe it's because of this Passion Week, because it centers there. And in fact, I believe everything centers in the cross. The risen life, as I said, let's examine the risen life. The risen life is the holy life. It is a life after crucifixion. It's important to note that Jesus' birth was not his resurrection. And our birth, spiritual birth, when we're born again, is not our resurrection. A resurrection always follows a cross, not a cradle. And therefore, he's speaking to one who has been crucified and there isn't life. Now that distinction is absolutely imperative in order to evaluate the risen life. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. The birth of the Spirit brings to us the regenerate life. We call it regeneration. It's another term for justification or adoption or the new birth or born again. However, the Baptism of the Holy Spirit introduces us to the risen life. The former regenerate, the latter the risen. In the former we enter into life, in the latter we are emancipated in life. Emancipated from what? The superfluity of naughtiness. Emancipated from the old man. Emancipated from the sin that dwells in us. Emancipated from the carnal mind. So you see, there's nothing within the heart to rival the rulership of our Lord. After we're saved, there's something that still challenges his rights to you within your heart. It's almost like the Trojan horse that had the enemy on the inside. It's one thing to battle Satan and the world on the outside. It's another thing to have an enemy in here, his cohort helping him to do his dastardly work while you have within you the carnal mind. That's why it is so important we experience this crucifixion and find the risen life. Following the resurrection, by the way, in the life of Christ, and I'm just telling you this, you pursue it later. In fact, I, I hope I open up enough few things that you'll want to follow them through in your own study. But let me, if you don't follow anything else, just remember, in the life of Christ, following his resurrection, Jesus displayed a more transcendent life than he did before the resurrection. I'll explain that a little bit further in just a moment. But uh, as we pass through this death to self, and by the way, I'm being very deliberate, not the death of self, but the death to self, we also will display a more abundant life. Why do you suppose Jesus said in the Gospel of John I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundant. There is two different stages there that he's speaking of. And I can tell you one is transcending the other, even though both of them are life. That's not just a play on words. That's just not throwing words out at random. That is a very purposeful statement because it's from this plane of purity that he admonishes us to seek those things which are above. Now, what are those things which are above that we're to seek? Well, let me say, first of all, we find them when Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. You remember following the resurrection, 11 times he was seen in 40 days before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. 
where he sits there as our representative priest. You see, from now on, he's not only our redemptive possession, dying for our sin. He today is our representative priest ministering on our behalf before the Father. I'm not sure we take advantage of that as we ought to or if we understand it as we ought to. By the way, he has called you and I to priestly duties. You are a royal priesthood. What does that mean? Do you know that uh, you have access to the Father that the world does not have through Jesus Christ? And do you know you can become a means of access for those who have no access? You think that isn't a tremendous responsibility as well as privilege? Dr. Kinlaw, I mentioned to you a moment ago, made the statement, no one, no one ever becomes a Christian who has not been first birthed in the heart of another Christian. If that's true, and I believe that firmly is true, how many people are being lost because we are not giving them access to the Father through our intercession, through our prayers? I'll tell you one thing. When I came to grips with that fact, and I'm not majoring there, it changed my whole prayer life. And since then, I have seen people come to receive Christ that I had never thought would ever come to see Christ. And it's no glory to me. It's just I finally grew up and understood there's something of a privilege that is at my access, and I had not been exercising it. So I want to tell you something. You are Christians here. You never became a Christian without someone first petitioning the Father on your behalf. I had no idea for many, many years how it all came, but I remember whenever I was uh, a, a little lad at home and I, we came from that family of 12 and, and uh, we, I wish there was sometimes I could speak off the record. I have to be very careful sometimes, but I, I can tell you we, uh, my mother used to wash clothes every day of the week but Sunday. Uh, not because we were so dirty, we just didn't have any clothes, and she had to wash them, that many of them, you can imagine. We didn't have any nice wash, uh, washing machines. I remember out in the cold, even with an old scrub board and the old uh, uh, lye soap and scrubbing the clothes, and their hands would be chafed, and it, it, was, it was a sight. And we used to, never had running water. I always say if we spilled it around, that's the only running water we had. <clears throat> but uh, we would haul water from the old neighborhood park and we'd fill up the tubs and what have you and all of that. But I remember once in a while, my mother had run out of lye soap. And I remember I got the job of walking down to the store, little general store, buying a box of Tide. <clears throat> I never did know if they made any other kind. My mother always used Tide, a bullseye on the box, you know, and had the words Tide's in, dirt's out. And anyhow... I got that box of Tide. I did not know, though I went by a saintly Methodist lady's home, Mrs. Gorman, Mrs. Wanda Gorman, I had no idea the impact she would hold on my life. But I was told many years after I became a Christian when I would walk by her window and I used to see her there with her Bible open, her pad and pen, her Sunday school lesson. She was praying for me every time I walked by the window. <laughs> And I probably attribute to her the major reason that I ever came to know Christ at all. I can tell you, we 
have a responsibility as a priest under God, who Christ himself is our representative priest. Long ago, when I entered into the kingdom of God, as you did, I welcomed Jesus. Any kingdom ought to have a king. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I entered the kingdom of God, and I have a king. His name is Jesus. And I have to tell you, I came the second time when he cleansed my heart in sanctifying grace to eradicate, and I love that term because I think it's more biblical than we like to give credit to, to cleanse, to purge, to crucify the old man of the heart that always wanted to rule or, or always wanted to uh, rival his rule. He's my king. He's the ruler of my life. He's the one from which I receive my, the riches of his resources. He reigns within my heart. And I, when I met him, at that time, I engaged him to look after my interest until I get to heaven. I'll tell you, you think these lawyers are good. I got news for you. I can advise you where to go to let someone look after the interest of your heart that you'll never have to worry about. 58 years, and I can tell you he has never failed me in ruling and looking after my interests. Now, why does, do I need him to do that? Well, he knows how weak I am. He knows how dumb I am. He knows how infirm I am. He understands me. For example, suppose in ignorance or human limitation, a wrong is committed. Not emotive necessarily, but maybe a mere mistake. I can tell you, the Holy Spirit is quick to remind us, and it isn't long, we sense a bit of guilt. Even though the motive was pure, the mistake was made. Consequently, we take that need to Jesus immediately. That's why I say I probably use the altar more than most of you. We take that need to Jesus, who in turn will plead our case before the Father. And as he does so, he intercedes on our behalf and makes a reconciliation between us and God. That's the advocate. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now I would remind you, Pastor and I had breakfast this morning, I mentioned somewhat of this to him. I, I would remind you that's not an escape mechanism. That's not for you to go around being nasty and then just say, oh well, I have an advocate, I'll tell Jesus about it, and then go do it again. It's only there as an emergency measure. And if any man sin, not when any man sin, like it's the normal course of action. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Uh, when that comes, don't cast your confidence away. If I don't say anything else to you, let me tell you this. Always hold fast what you have while you're pursuing what you have not. Don't let the devil talk you out of what you've got. He loves to do that. He loves to whisper in your ears. Every time you go through a hard place or you speak out of turn or you uh, do something that you know God isn't pleased with, he isn't there to kick you over the precipice. He understands my faults. He understands my failures. He understands my lack. He knows I'm limited, but I can tell you he has made provisions for them. That's why he said, seek those things which are above. Set your affections on things above. Now, God has made us to enjoy things, hasn't he? 
God even made things for his son. If you look at the first chapter of this letter, it tells us all things were created by him and for him. Things not only visible, but things invisible. <laughs> and God in, it has made things. Things occupy a great deal of our time. You get a new truck, man, you're going to talk about it. New automobile, new home, new clothes, new computer, whatever else you get. Things. In fact, the admonition of setting our affections on things seems to me to be well uh, founded and well followed in these days. But the problem is, if we're not careful, we set our affections on the wrong things. The things that perish. As I was in my study today, I was reminded <clears throat> over in the Gospel of Luke, the rich man Lazarus, you remember Lazarus, the poor man that fed at the rich man's gate and, and fed at his crumbs from the table and all, and then the rich man died. By the way, when I read that, I think about the fact that the Lazarus, the poor man, was carried by angels in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man was probably, they had a lavish funeral for him. They probably had all kind of men speaking on his behalf and all the accolades, and all the time they were speaking, he was in hell itself. And do you remember in that passage where he said, uh, Father Abraham, ask Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my parched tongue. And then they, Father Abraham said uh, to the rich man, do you remember, do you remember rich man, thou in thy lifetime had your good things and Lazarus evil things and thou art now tormented. Good things? Do you remember the incident where Jesus told Simon Peter that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer many things, and he's going to be crucified, and he's going to raise the third day, and Peter spoke up as he always would, and said, oh, be that, let that not be unto thee, Father. And Jesus looked at him and said, get thee behind me, Satan. Listen, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. My Bible tells me there's another commandment. Love not the world or the things that are in the world. Why? Because we're to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, why would he give that admonition to us? I, uh, I'm convinced that there are benefits derived from our setting our affections on the right thing. Your life... <clears throat> for example, won't crumble if you set your affections on things above if you suffer temporal loss. I, I didn't live back in that day, but there are some people who live in such a way that their heart is entwined with the things of this world in this life that if they lose anything, they're almost devastated. I, I didn't live during the Depression, but I read about it. And whenever Wall Street crashed, they were jumping out of 10-story building windows, committing suicide. They were so entwined with their money that when they lost it, their life was gone. I never did understand why whenever a ball team in a tournament loses, they want to go out and burn the town down. Never figured that out. 
Now they're doing it when they win. I don't know. I don't know what in the world's going on. Now I can tell you, we all suffer various kinds of losses, and I can also tell you, they aren't easy and enjoyable to go through, but they won't devastate you if you set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth. If you set your affections on things above, it preserves what's most important in your life. How do I know? Because he says that is the place where thieves can't break in and steal, and rust and moth can't corrupt. Therefore, he says, I want to give you rich things in your heart to enjoy. Now, I know he's talking about this world. How do I know that? Because there is no corruption or thievery in heaven. (laughs) So he is saying to you and me, I'm going to give you things in this world, in your heart, in your life, that no matter what happens, rust won't corrupt it. Thieves can't steal it. It's something I've given to you. And I can assure you of one thing. There is no personal loss of any heavenly treasures. That good news? If we set our affections on things above, it guarantees that God will help us while we're here on this earth. Luke chapter 12, seek first the kingdom of God and he will add everything else that he deems necessary. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Not all your wishes. Not all you would maybe go around begging for. I can tell you, he said, I'll provide your food. I'll provide your raiment. I'll fight your foes. He said, I'll make up for your failures. To possess him is to possess his. Man, we sing the song, I'm a child of the king. (laughs) We live like a bunch of paupers. I have blue blood running through my vein. Never feel sorry for me. I'm a child of the king. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. You can have your little mansion down here. I've got a far better one. I remember years ago, there was a man by the name of Dr. Hicks, one of the great southern orders that ever preached, as far as I was concerned. And I remember he was such a godly man and he never had a home of his own. A lot of preachers don't have homes of their own. That was back in those days when, well, that was back in those days. <laughs> but I remember one time he's getting late in years and they asked him what he's going to do when you retire. You don't even have a home of your own. And you'd have to know how he spoke and I won't do it. But he just reached in and pulled out his tithe envelope and put it in the offering plate. And he said, oh, yeah, I do. He said, I just made a down payment. I put my tithe in the offering. It's a mansion that God's got for me on the other side. Let me tell you, folks, that's a wonderful comfort, isn't it? A mansion he will provide. If you set your affections on things above, I'm convinced you will be better stewards of temporal and material things here. If you seek first the kingdom of God, I never wrestle with tithing. I never have. There was one time early in my life that an incident happened that made me realize I don't wrestle with that anymore. By the way, there are some things in your Christian walk, if you establish as a discipline, the devil will not come and tempt you every other day. He tempts you when you are vacillating, when he thinks you're just a little bit uh, undesiring to do what he wants you to do. I, 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 I only know my own experience, so I give this to you. I was... My dad had left us and for 
the time. We didn't know where it was. And as I mentioned, I was the oldest at home. And I remember that uh, we lived in this house and the, the coal, we burned coal and wood, an old coal uh, cook stove and heating stove, uh, warm morning. And I remember that uh, the coal pile was low. And all I had, I hadn't been in church very long. All I had was what tithe I had earned working for a farmer down the road. I had, I think about, I don't know, $16 or so. It was my tithe. It's all the money I had. And I remember that I could, get a, I could get probably a ton and a half coal with that much money then. And uh, we lived right across the elevator where we used to unload boxcar loads of coal. And I didn't know what to do. I felt like maybe I ought to go buy a ton of coal. So I walked the railroad track, went to the pastor, and I said to him, I said, you know, after we talked a while, I said, I got this money, it's my tithe. I said, uh, we really need to get some fuel. Mom and the kids. And I said, what do you think? Maybe using it to buy some coal. I'll never forget him looking at me. He said, well, Nelson, I'm not going to tell you. You just trust God and do what he wants you to do. I won't think one way or the other about it. Well, before I left, I gave him that money. I didn't want to be tempted with it. And you know, I got back. <clears throat> I got back to the house and I walked across the railroad track where the elevator was coming down to that old house. And a man by the name of Jake Watkins called me and he run the elevator and he said, oh, by the way, Nelson, there's a big old pile of slack coal out there in the back. So if you want to filter through that and sift through it, then you can get you some lumps of coal out of there. You're welcome to have it. And I think I got about two or three tons ton of coal off of that slack pile. I want to tell you something, folks. From that moment on, this man never concerned himself about paying his tithe. It's not mine. It's God's. And if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto us. Abraham had a long and a very useful life because of the pull of the things of heaven. You remember it says he looked for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. The hope of a better country is what gave faith to those who were running the race because they were always looking unto Jesus. He's the one above. Jesus is the author and the finisher of their faith. In fact, it was the joy that was set before Jesus. What was the joy set before him that enabled him to endure the cross and despise the shame? The joy of bringing many sons and daughters into glory. It was that joy of a, that which was coming that enabled him to endure the shame and the ridicule and the death of the cross itself. God had no better way for his son than the cross. And he has no better way for you and me than the cross itself. Because you see, a necessary part of the higher life is a higher love. The love of God is shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Did you hear? It's God's love. It's not phileo love. It's not the brotherly love. It's not eros, where comes the word erotic. It's agape. It's that love that is sacrificial in its nature. It's that love that always puts others before the self. And it's that higher love that he's called us to. And he said it's by this love 
All men will know that you are my disciples because you have love one to another. No one was dumber than I was when I came to the house of God the first time. I couldn't have been as dumb as I was. But I can tell you something. I didn't know a thing about doctrine. I didn't know a scripture to even quote. I didn't know any theology. I didn't know anything. But I discovered something. This love that Jesus talks about is very, very difficult to define. It's as elusive as a sunbeam. But it's not hard to experience. When people love you, you know it. And I walked in that church, 15-year-old kid, and I saw love like I'd never seen it before. I never got away from it. The world doesn't care much about how much we know until they know how much we care. And we ought to show them the love of God. Because you see, our treasures are no longer earthly, they are heavenly. Our tasks that he calls us to are holy. A labor of love. A work of faith. Our temples are his. That's why, folks, you can go around debate all you want to about all these addictions and all these idiotic things we do with this temple as though it's all your business. Can I tell you something? When we go around saying it's my business, it's my business, that is as insane as it is irreligious. It's God's business. And this is his body. And we understand it's under the curse And it's not going to last very long in this world, but we have absolutely no right to desecrate the dwelling place of our heavenly God. This is where he dwells. This is his temple. Don't look at me. I'm going to leave town here in just a few minutes. So I'm just trying to say. I want you to note in closing the, the hidden life. It's a higher life. This is all a lifted life, really. The higher life is a hidden life because in verse 3 it says, Your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, that life that the sanctified enjoy is hidden from the understanding of those outside looking in. I've had them, you know, I've lived out here in this world, in the church world, for many, many years. I probably go more to church than two people in a lifetime. And I've listened to all the critics of the doctrine of entire sanctification as a second work of grace. I've watched their lives. I don't debate with them. I just feel sorry for them. After all, they don't understand. Well, I got it all at once, preacher. No, you got all you got at once, but you didn't get it all at once. And by the way, folks, there's more yet to come. Justification was one thing. Sanctification is another thing. But there's another fact I haven't experienced yet. It's called glorification. If you ever get it all at once, you're going to have to get knocked in the head and get on to heaven to get it all at once. Well, I'm saying that because the world seeks their social stimuli, their satisfaction, their pleasure, their happiness, their entertainment on the things on the horizontal level. In this world, things below, houses, 
lands, properties, everything down here. I mean, we're, we're enamored, inundated with things in this world. Christ should be your eternal portion. Christ should be your everlasting possession because it's in him we not only find our resources in living for he's the one who is the rich king we will find our reward in life reward in life I uh, recall my wife and I were called to the ministry I can tell you it was a battle there's no one that was more ill-equipped and unqualified to be a preacher of the word than I was. In fact, I was so introverted in those days, I hardly would talk. And I remember sitting in the revival meeting and I never had to go to the altar. God spoke clear and loud to me sitting in the back of the church and, and I knew what I had to do. And my wife and I got in the automobile and headed home and she noticed apparently I was just a little bit quieter than I normally am. And she said, God spoke to you, didn't he? I said, yeah. I said, why? I said, well, I, I know he was speaking to you because he was speaking to me. I said, what was he saying to you? Well, he said, let me ask you. Did he ask you about preaching his word? <laughs> I said, yeah, I did. Let me tell you something, folks. That's a shocking, shocking thing to face. We had our family. I had a job. I had my home. I had everything. We were set. Didn't mind going to church. Didn't mind paying my tithe. Didn't mind teaching Sunday school class. But me go out in the ministry? Go preach the gospel? You know what we did that night? She and I both fell on our face in our home until the sun rose the next day. We knew what they had to do. When I finally acquiesced to it, let me tell you, it isn't always easy, but you got to learn to trust God. I can say that now from this perspective. Where God guides, he always provides. And I remember that I was willing now to go preach the gospel and go minister. I left a job that I made probably three, maybe four times more than I got in that little church that I took. There's no way in the world we can make ends meet. I think it was $35 or $40 a week. I left my home. I left my job. I left everything. And they said when I left, man, you'll starve to death. Well, I got to tell you something. There's a passage in Psalms 37 that I have claimed as my own where the psalmist says, I was young. Now I'm old. I've not yet seen the righteous forsaken or his seat begging bread. And I haven't. Now I'm going to tell you something about going out in the ministry. I'm, I hate to leave you, so I'm taking my time. I had not, no idea when God called me that I was going to, I, I knew I wanted to be, go into evangelism more than I wanted to be in a pastor. And so I didn't stay long in a pastor, two and a half years or so, and been in evangelism all these 43 years nearly. I remember I had to be away from my home. I'm just talking about, I guess, maybe the rewards of our labors. 
I remember that as revival started, I would leave my wife and my three sons and I would go out in a meeting. Never one time, Barbara doesn't know I'm going to talk about this, but never one time have I ever heard her one time complain that I had to be gone. I could not have done that if she was in any way displeased with my being away. She took care of those three boys. One day, we lived out in the country. One night, she came home with the boys and the back door had been broken into. And somebody had broken into our house way out there in the country and stole a few things. And she didn't know what they were still in the house. And she had to finally go in and search it out and there wasn't anyone in the house. What I hadn't known is she was speaking to a... Uh, group of preacher's wives in the camp meeting and they just asked her to share her experience and, and she made the statement and I did not know this all these years. She said, you know, I laid in my bed terrified except that all I could do was quote scripture until I went off to sleep night after night after night. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't know that. In fact, after that happened, I, I don't even know why I'm telling you. I've never told anybody else this, and she never told me any of this. But I remember after that happened, I'll tell you what I found myself doing. I'd be driving home, and all of a sudden, the old enemy would get in my ear and say, you know, you might have a bloody mess when you get home. Somebody may invade your home and destroy your family. And you know what I would find myself doing? I'd find myself doing 80, 85, 90 mile an hour trying to get home. And God had to stay me. I'm just simply saying to you, God will control your life if you relinquish it to him. And nothing, nothing can happen accidentally to you. Whatever happens has to gain his permission. Now let me give you, and I'm, I just wanted to leave this before I go. When you talk about the hidden life, do you know what the word hid means? Your life is hid with Christ in God. Do you know what the word hid means? It literally means to deposit. Do you know the bank secures deposits with its resources? When you deposit money in the bank, it's insured by their resources that it's okay. And then they take that money and loan that money out as investments that you brought in. Our spiritual banker is the Lord himself, our sanctified life is deposited with him and he secures it against any loss and if we leave it with him by faith, he alone will invest it. He will choose where you go, what you do. He will also choose where he wills to put you in your life. No matter where he places you, he will protect you. You can count on him. No other means has God made to uh, provided to save the world except a man? I use that word generically. God's method of winning the world is through a man. If the world's going to be saved, folks, you and I are a part of that channel he works through. Now, I don't know what he's going to call you to do, but I can tell you, I mentioned last evening, he has to invest us in order to invite them. That's what the word hid means. We are his endowed ones. 
We are his epistles that the world reads. They don't read this book. And God never intended that man would be earth's prisoner. He intended that we would be made eternity's pilgrims. We're on a journey. And we're going to get through this one of these days. And the return on our deposited lives will be disclosed. Let me read it, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. What did John say in chapter 3? It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Did you remember a moment ago I said to you, God's life was transcendently greater after the resurrection than it was before the resurrection? Do you know before the resurrection, he never moved in and out of rooms without a door. He always went through the doors. Not after the resurrection. He didn't need a door to go in and out of the rooms. Do you know... After the resurrection, he had the capability of concealing his identity, even with two walking down the road of Emmaus, about a, about a four-hour journey on, in the dusty sand, and they never recognized him. Their, their eyes were such that they, they could not behold him until he went into their house in Emmaus, and then the guest became the, the servant, and he blessed them, broke the bread, and gave it to them. Their eyes were open, they beheld who he was, and he vanished from their midst. You remember that he identified himself whenever he was in the garden and Mary came to take care of the body of Jesus and put spices around it and she couldn't find it. The tomb was empty. The body was gone. Here was a man who looked like the gardener. And Mary said, what have you done with him? What have you done with his body? And all Jesus did was say, Mary. Mary. Mary looked at him and said, oh, Rabboni. Don't touch me, Mary. I'm not yet ascended to my father. There is a present day likeness and there is a future likeness. And I'm done. If you read 1 John, it tells us in the second chapter we're to walk even as Jesus walked. Let me put it another way. Walk like Jesus. If you remember, he says in chapter 3, verse 3, we're to be pure even as he is pure. Pure like he is. If you remember in chapter 2, I think it's about the uh, seventh verse or so, or three, verse seven, he says, You're to be righteous even as he is righteous, or like he is. In other words, that is a present day likeness. But that isn't what he says here. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when he appears, we shall be like him. That's a future likeness. Do you remember John? John was absolutely enamored with the glory of the incarnation. Read in the first chapter. We beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But can I remind you that John, along with Peter and James, was taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration, along with Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured before them, and they looked at them, and they'd never seen anything like that transformation. And Peter said, man, let's just build three tabernacles and stay here. I have no idea what they saw. All I know is that when he comes, I'm going to cash my deposit in with interest. <laughs> and I'm going to be just like him. So will you. Folks, I won't sleep tonight. This may not bother you like it does me. But I got to tell you, I want to see him face to face. You know, I, I, you, you might think I've lost my mind and it's okay 
you won't be the first, but I gotta tell you something. I have become so acquainted with Jesus that I miss the fact that he's going back to the Father and I want to see him. <clears throat> we talk about our loved ones passing on and we look forward to the day we can see them. I gotta tell you something. I'm looking forward to the day that I can see Jesus. Don't, don't get discouraged. Don't cast your confidence away. Don't yield whatever you do. Hold fast. Don't let go. We don't have much longer to go. <laughs> We're almost there. I've asked Amy if we could sing tonight. Isn't that something? She'd been playing and singing. Wore her out. It's time she gets some help. I want us to stand together tonight. And I want to sing the two verses that we've, we've been singing. Jesus, keep me near the cross. If I, I, hope, I think we might have that on the screen. If we don't, I'm sure they know it. But we're going to sing this. But just before we do, would you bow your head? And I, I just want to say, I try not to pull people just to get an altar call. But you know the altar is always open. And if you ever need to come, we welcome you. It's a wonderful place to meet God. And it may be that you uh, have been quickened, but you haven't been crucified. <laughs> so that you can enjoy the risen life. If not, it's available. Feel free to, whatever God's saying to you, I, haven't, I don't even presume to know what God says to you. But if he's speaking to you and you have any needs, we have an altar at the last service of this meeting. But I wonder, are we going to have the words on the screen tonight? Father, you know the need. You know what you have prepared for those of them that love you. We just get a foretaste every now and then. We sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We get a little heaven to go to heaven in, but oh, what's it going to be like when you pour it all out on us? We want to see it. We don't want to miss it. These are your faithful people there. They have every intention of making heaven their home. And there's not enough demons or devils in and out of hell to keep them from going. By the grace of God, we can make it. Help us to stay near the cross. Help us to stay near the cross. Let's sing together that hymn, Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross. Jesus, keep me near, near the cross. There's a precious fountain. Free to walk. Free to walk. From Calvary's
She uh, slipped out, went on home to heaven. And pastor came, and the daughter was there by the bedside where she'd gone on home. Her husband's already gone. She said, You know, I really can't weep for mother. Said in her mind, she'd been in heaven for the last 20 years. She just took her body there. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Just draw up our feet and we'll be gone. But the Old Testament says, won't be long. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the tremendous price you paid for our redemption now, Lord. As our representative, we bow before you, you who are above, you who are sitting at the right hand of the Father, we want to thank you. And Jesus, may we bring others to the foot of the cross. May we intercede on their behalf. And as these at this altar, Lord, has come, they want to draw nearer to you. And Lord, if there's any lack, anything needful in their heart or in their life, you can more than fulfill it. And so, Jesus, we commit that and them to you. We're leaving tonight, Lord, and the scheduled meeting's over, but you will go with each of us, and you will be closer than the very breath that we breathe, and we are determined, Lord, to make heaven home. And we're also determined, Lord, not to go alone. We're going to take some with us, and God use our lives as a channel, and don't let them us be concerned about what you require of us because you will enable. You will give us the grace, the enabling power, the endowment, the enlightenment, anything that we need to fulfill your purpose in our life. And we give you already the glory. For we ask it in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Pastor, do you have any closing words?